Northwest Prime, bringing Seattle to the world and the world to Seattle. I'm your host, Lori Ness, a soldier on the front line of the mainstream. You can listen to this and other shows at northwestprime.com and be sure to stay with Seattle Wave Radio 24-7, 365 for more great music and interviews. We're starting a movement of kindness and we want you to join us. Let's get this show started. Well, I have some really great guests for us today. I'm really excited about today's show. The first guest, Shelly Boris, she's going to be on in just a few minutes. Shelly has a brand new cookbook coming out called A Year of Recipes from the Garrison Institute, of which Shelly was a founder of that. She also founded the Fresh Company, um, which is very popular back in New York. She's really big on sustainability. She's worked long and hard to support sustainability in agriculture, and that's something that I've just recently become passionate about. And uh, Shelley has published recipes in books and journals like the New York Times and Food and Wine Magazine. She has cooked for the Dalai Lama and Mikhail Gorbachev. We're going to talk about that. And then later in the show, I'm going to have on Morgan and Jennifer Locklear. And they have a blog tour that's just starting today, their brand-new debut book, Exposure has just come out. Today's the release day, so we're going to check in with them. They've been really on a hard promotional push on this, and we're going to check in and see how they're doing and how sales are going. And this book, Exposure, is so they're a husband and wife team, and they've written that book together. So that's very fascinating on one end for me to see how even writing a book with anybody else, let alone your spouse, kind of plays out. So we're going to check in with them and see how, how all that's going. And um, you probably have the links that are flashing before your eyes as uh, the show goes on, links to Shelley and the Garrison Institute, and then Morgan and Jen on their new book, Exposure. So we're going to go and get Shelley on the phone, and you're going to listen to Jessica Lynn. Jessica Lynn is here from Seattle. She tried out for The Voice. She did not make it, but she's still going strong with her music career. This is just going to give you a little taste of how strong the competition is for people on The Voice. This is Jessica Lynn calling me home. She didn't make it. I try to remember, but I try to 
with our guest today, Shelly Boris. And as I said earlier, Shelly has a brand new cookbook that's coming out. It will be shipping in June. You can pre-order this right now on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all, all your regular sources on that. It's called A Year of Recipes from the Garrison Institute Kitchen. And one thing that I'm really interested in talking to Shelly about, not only all these wonderful cook. Uh, cooking ideas and recipes that she's come up with, but she's also cooked with for some very notable people. We talked about earlier Dalai Lama and Mikhail Gorbachev, but she's really worked hard to support sustainability. And that's something that I'm very curious and excited about as I'm kind of learning more about sustainability and trying to be a, a better shopper on, on a personal level. So Shelley, thanks and welcome for coming and, you know, for coming on to today's show. Thank you. Thank you very much. So this cookbook that's coming out, why did you put this group of recipes together? Well, I've been cooking, running the food program and running the kitchen and cooking at the Garrison Institute for about 10 years now. I have a long uh, history in a food business, restaurants, catering, and I have children cooking at home. And I guess after 10 years, I look back over all the many menus that I created and tried to come up with a book that, while it's good for, I think, cooks of all levels of experience, I really did try to focus a little bit on beginners and try to come up with a balanced book that was approached the menus in a seasonal way. At the same time, recipes and menus that would be adaptable over the course of the year. So while a curry recipe might appear in uh, July, for example, that same recipe could be adjusted and made in September or in December even. And so I really looked for a balance of, of and then I also looked for a balance. It's my first cookbook, so I have a lot of recipes I've carried with me my whole life, some that are new that I'm, you know, just experimenting with. So it's, it's kind of a, a balance. And I saw it as, in a way, although there's three menus per month, and of course there's 12 months, 36 menus, really I think with variations, a person could use this over the course of a year with, you know, no problem, and it would be a good starting book for people. Yeah, and, and that's something that I, I think a lot of people, especially with, with the success of all these cooking shows that have um, come on air, I think it's it's really built this new curiosity for, like you said, beginners and people like me to really think that we could do this without having a formal education in cooking. Um, it's made to look very easy. And, of course, if we're not doing super elaborate things, it, it can be relatively easy and, and fun. To cook for a lot of, yeah, it definitely can be. And it can be, so there's different ways cooking can be, Sometimes things are just complicated. They, they seem complicated. They sound complicated. And in a step-by-step, -step, if you approach a recipe, they aren't necessarily complicated. But sometimes recipe books are built for sort of restaurant-style cooking at home, which is can be super fun. But this book takes approach to, uh, to provide people with recipes for food that isn't like that. It's really food that can be mostly prepared in advance so the cook can sit down um, and enjoy kind of family-style meals together with the people they're cooking for. So in that sense, it's simple. Sometimes they're not entirely simple, meaning fast. Something might take a little while to cook, 
but it, it's not complicated and it isn't um, something that has to be watched, you know, super, super carefully. And I think um, when you talked about sustainability, the other thing about home cooked meals, I'm, I come from a restaurant background. I love to eat out. I love to eat out places where there's food that nobody can make at home because it's special. And when you spend lots of money and you go out to eat, it's nice to have something that you couldn't, it's a little bit mysterious even. But when you cook at home, it can be frustrating to have recipes where if, there's, if you don't have something on hand, the whole recipe maybe won't doesn't seem to you like it'll turn out well if you're not an experienced chef and you don't know how to make substitutes. So hopefully I've given people suggestions. And also um, I think a big part of, in a way, sustainability is being able to think about how to be able to afford to eat well and to eat in, in all different budgets and different ranges of budget. And so sometimes it doesn't mean it's all food from the farmer's market or it's all food that's organic. I mean, all of those things might be great, but if um, somebody doesn't have access or doesn't have the budget for that, it can be frustrating maybe to read some books that emphasize that. So my goal was to kind of approach a, a menu selection for many people to be able to approach and feel they are approachable and that they are able to make food that's pretty much you know from scratch and delicious and doable and moderate. Both you know, price and all kinds of availability of ingredients. I mean, not to say that some of these recipes do suggest slightly esoteric seasonal ingredients, but there's always good substitute as well. Are, are more people, I, I guess maybe more average people, more mainstream people maybe is the right word, catching on to wanting to look at, at sustainability and, and utilize that in their everyday life? Have you seen a growth in that? Sustainability meaning that they want to be thoughtful regarding what they see as like to be like a good environmental sort of citizen in, in that way. Like, cause it's just, it's a, it's an interesting question. And I, and um, it's something that we think about a lot here. We have lots of environmental programs at the Institute and we care, but it's actually something I try not to, tell people what's right, what's wrong, because I think we're all should be just good students of science. And so do we want to sustain all of us on the planet and feed everybody? And does that mean there may be some high-tech solutions to the way we grow food that other people might say are, you know, increase, you know, this whole GMO thing is very, very complicated in that regard. And so sometimes raising cows on all grass means, you know, there won't be enough meat for everybody. And so some people might say, well, nobody should be eating meat. Other people think, you know, it's the best way to get some people who are hungry protein. And so the question of sustainability for me is one that's ongoing. And I try to read um, uh, all the best science writers. I, I read uh, and pay attention to here in New York uh, on the daughters is Andy Revkin, you know, is somebody who I think puts out a lot of great information on these subjects. And, they're they're complicated, and um, I tried to put together recipes with ingredients that were real and available, and kind of put out uh, the recipes. You know, it's my expertise, and then have people approach the science and their budgets in a way, maybe personally a little bit, because it's 
I, I hesitate to tell people like how to eat, what to eat, how much to spend, and where to buy food, because it is it is like I think sort of a process that we're all like learning together. Mm-hmm. I have really ventured out probably in the last few years to farmers markets, and I've really found I was kind of intimidated by them at first uh, because I thought I don't. I see all this great stuff, but I don't know what to do with it once I bring it home. Um, and then, of course, I didn't want it to go to waste, but I, I wasn't sure how to utilize it in its best. You know, carrots, I, I knew what to do with a carrot or broccoli, right, right. you know, but um, th- they were growing so much more things. And so it, it's been really a discovery and a journey for me to find ways when I'm at the farmer's market and I see something, I think, oh, man, I remember seeing that in Shelley's cookbook or I remember seeing that in you know, on TV or I saw it here or there. And, and then it gives me a way that I could broaden my horizon, so to speak, but yet right. do it in a fun way while interacting. I've really found it to be, um, th- these farmer's markets, to be just a, um, a fun and interactive social place to go. And yeah, because often you can get to know the farmer's too and then sometimes they'll give you suggestions or sometimes they'll give you a taste a lot of things are worth trying raw peel it and taste it there's nothing better than that roast it taste it taste it you know just keep tasting it and uh, looking it up of course like you said in a book or online and just um, especially in the world of vegetables there's so few vegetables that people wouldn't find friendly enough to taste to you know have a sense of Oh, that reminds me a little bit of parsnip. Reminds looks like a carrot. Tastes a little bit like a carrot. Reminds me of a carrot. I'm just going to try, you know, to substitute it for carrot. And one thing I do here at the institute a lot that I love is trying some vegetables that people don't always eat raw. We we always need something refreshing because a lot of these meals, as I said, are not made a la menu, meaning like in a restaurant last minute. So we have a lot of stews and braised foods. So we want to have something refreshing and crispy on the side. And so one way to try, like you said, some of these new things is to even try them raw. But we take zucchini, summer squash, grate it and use those raw. Asparagus tastes like fresh peas when they're in season. It can be cut up raw on the side. And that's one way to, you know, try something very simply, one ingredient at a time, and then you get to know it. Yeah, um, and you can also go back and talk to to that same farmer again. I, I've gone back. I bought asparagus right. the other day, and I and we had it was it was some of the best asparagus I ever had. And I went back and I told him, and he was so happy to hear that. Uh, but you know, it, it just it, and I was happy to be able to tell him that. And uh, but he, you know, it was the same guy there, and he was you know still selling you know asparagus and different things. But it 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 was this human connection kind of that we were having back and forth that you know a, right. a, a relationship i guess you know we, we were having yeah. a you know a little food relationship it's true and there you know i've actually had um worked at farmers markets and i know when you're there if people are interested and engage you it makes being there and working there that much more fun not only do you have new varieties of vegetables but you have varieties within so that you might know what a carrot is, but now you can get white carrots and purple carrots and dark red carrots and, you know, all different kinds. And so there's differences in flavor just within the category of vegetable that you know that you may not have ever tried. And sometimes they sweeten up after you cook them. Sometimes they don't. And one 
from one to the next won't even be the same. If you buy berries after it's rained a lot, they'll be waterier, and you might end up wanting to cook them to concentrate them. If it was a dry week and you try it, you might see they're so sweet that you'd rather not even make those pies that you thought you were going to make because you just want to eat them raw. I'm a big uh, believer in smelling and tasting and all along the way, you know, in the process of cooking. Because a recipe is great, but if you're using, you know, raw ingredients and you're getting them from the market and there's no absolute, you know, consistency, if you taste along the way, and there's not a right way to taste, it's just do I like the way that tastes? You know, do I want to add something? Is it a little bland, so I'm going to spice it up? So if using your own, you know, gaining confidence, it sounds like what you're saying too, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you always have this fascination and love for food, even as as a child, or is it something that you acquired along the way? I I think that I had an. Uh, let's see. I think I have a, without sounding silly, like a kind of a maybe like people think some kids are picky, um, and they don't like to eat or they don't like food. Really, they probably have a somewhat sensitive palate and they're paying attention to what they're eating. So sometimes I think I was always that way. Sometimes it, it came out as I didn't like to eat certain things. And sometimes you know, it came out that I loved certain things. I had a strong opinion about what I ate. And my mom was a good cook and we were, I was exposed to a lot of things as a child. But I feel like along the way I wasn't maybe ready for certain things. I didn't want to eat cheese when I was little and I'd love to eat cheese now. So I think I was... I had a you know sort of an interest and paid attention to what I was eating and tried it all the way other people hear music and sing maybe and I don't do that very well so I think that was inside me and I've been doing it now for a long time I actually was trained as a painter and um, found my way like a lot of people in the arts into the food world and in New York City in the 80s and it was a time when you know there was a lot of interest in looking at imported foods from all over and Little by little, that translated into well, how what can we and what what exists here, and then you know noticing that maybe we were getting rid of a lot of the wonderful things we were doing already, and trying to either keep alive or bring back traditions and supporting local um, producers, farmers, and all kinds of you know um, butchers and you know, local jam makers and cheese makers. And so I really see things have gotten uh, better again, maybe better than they've ever been in a lot of parts of this country. It's funny that you would touch on that because I've also seen that a lot too, where um, creativity in the art then later translates into the restaurant and into culinary. And I've seen, talk to, you just mentioned that you started out as a painter, and i talked to musicians, and um, that, mm-hmm. that, that need to, to create one way or another, if, if it ends up not coming out in music or painting or, or something else, um, it, it comes out in, in food, which is so yeah. wonderful for the rest of us. <laughs> I think so. I think it's related, and more people. It's also a little like our, years ago people were, uh, not necessarily, I mean, way before my time, people didn't go to art school like they did when I was young. And now so many more uh, young people are drawn to cooking school the way, you know, I was maybe drawn to art school. And so more and more people who are thinking about and making a choice to put make a food career their career are drawn to the field. And so it's very dynamic, you know, and there's a lot of 
a lot of, like you said, a lot of creative people thinking and becoming trained. And I, uh, for a while, feel like there was a push to have home cooks feel like they had to have the most professional stove and they had to cook everything on a high heat and they had to feel like they were restaurant cooks. And while I think it's so great for people to experience and go out to great restaurants and if they wanted to cook like that at home, that's also great. But I think uh, cooking is just, uh, you know, eating home cooked food is so great that I think thinking about home cooking in a way that is different from restaurant cooking it's also good because in an everyday way, people are busy, you know, they can't do that and they shouldn't feel they have to. And um, making some things very simple and shopping, like you said, maybe what you do when you go to farmer's market, if you're intimidated, say, I'm just going to buy two things, you know, I'm gonna, that's all. Or I'm going to spend $20 and that's it. Or, you know, and just little by little, just expose yourself to new things and mm-hmm. you won't feel so uh, intimidated by all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good tip, and I think it's just like um, anything else. You know, you, you just start little by little. It's like you know, when I went first went to the gym, I just would like beeline it for like one piece of equipment because I was afraid to kind of mm-hmm. like walk around the gym, you know. And then you know, after you know about you know a few days or so, I you know was kind of checking everything out while I was you know on the treadmill. Then then I thought, well, I, I think I could actually wander over to that place and over to this place, and that's kind of how the farmers markets got to be too. You know, I was just like going for the broccoli and carrot guy, um, but now I'm into like asparagus and kale and summer squash, and you know, I'm I'm like all over the place now. But it didn't start out like that, to, and and. That that reminded right. me when you said that maybe you just start out at one or two things. Right, that's right. And now a lot of the markets like here, I'm sure where you are, even more so maybe, but they're year-round markets. And so the winter is kind of a fun time to explore farmers' markets because those vegetables that aren't as like, uh, you know, when you when you go to the farmers' market in August, you're just going to go get a tomato because they're ephemeral and they're just not great most of the year, but uh, and the beets that are in season, maybe you won't pick up as uh, much, but if you go to the farmer's market in January and what's left are the items that were able to be held up and they're in the root, it's a, t- it's a good time to try those sort of un- unusual root cellar type vegetables or, or maybe cheeses that were a little bit expensive, those local made cheeses, and if you're going to use some like cabbage or eat an omelet or something less expensive in the winter, the winter is a good time to try, you know, the ingredients at the farmer's market that are, like I said, either a little more unusual, maybe a little more expensive to complement um, a winter meal. And a winter is a kind of a cool time to, uh, you know, start going to farmer's markets, I think. Mm-hmm. And they're not as crowded. Yeah, they're not as crowded and and the farmers have time, right, to talk about what's going on. And um, it's just kind of a, a fun to sort of perk up, you know, the meals in the middle of the winter time. Mm-hmm. Especially if maybe and, you're going to the supermarket for other other items, you know, because there is less at the farmer's market. Right, right, have, yeah. I mean, I, year-round markets in, in Seattle, I'm sure. I go to Pike Market a lot. Yeah, and it, yeah. they're open all all year long, but there are right. times, you know, it's, it's obviously way busier in the winter. I mean, in the summer, and more farmers are coming in. But the same, you know, you always have those same, you know, tried and true farmers there in the winter as well. And when you get to know them in the winter, then when the busy season rolls around and they're, you know, there's a lot going on, you you 
made that connection with them long before. So, um, that's right. You know, you you kind of got on the same wavelength. They they recognize you and they and they talk to you, and 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 that relationship is still maintained um, when they're you know super busy in in the summer. So, no, I I think that's an absolutely fantastic idea, and I I completely agree with that. And also, so this the book. Um, uses a lot of vegetables, but it's and on our default meal here at the Garrison Institute is vegetarian, but we do uh, use meat and fish, and um, that's another thing to think about that hopefully I'm putting out there is that if you want to support uh, local growers when it uh, comes to meat in particular, um, to find ways to use small amounts of meat for great flavor to add to a dish that's very rich in vegetables is um, a way to balance budget, and also I think is a good, it feels good as a way to eat. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, people want to eat a big old steak. I, I'm not saying people should be vegetarian or shouldn't, but I think it's a a nice way to eat for me is to think about meat as a good flavoring complement, and um, I think it helps people, like I said, budget, and it helps people to also try some more unusual cuts of meat and to put them on the side or to add them in or to something like that might take a long time to stew, to cook into with beans, for example. Or, and I think that we the recipes in the book are adaptable in that way, too. So you they sort of get vegetarian versions and versions with small amounts of meat or fish and um, help people because these days so many people will come and ask, well, they're vegetarian or they're not eating gluten or they're not eating this or that. And so I try to, in these menus, come up with meals that are, you know, somewhat adaptable so that a group of people with ways of eating can come together and enjoy a meal together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because just like you said, um, there's, there's kind of a spectrum out there now um, of kind of where you are on the on the eating chart. You know, if you're like a super meat eater or you're at one end or you're a vegan down at the other. And I right. kind of fall in, in, in between, you know. So I, exactly. I'm not vegan. Um, but, you know, I, I could almost be vegetarian except I really do like occasionally to have meat, you know, I like to have fish and chicken and seafood, and but I, I don't mm-hmm. have to have it every day. But but then there's other people, probably like my husband, who, you know, he, he, yeah. he just thinks that he should have meat every day. I don't know if he necessarily mm-hmm. needs it, but he, but he thinks that he does have to have it. Um, so there, there, there's a spectrum, like you're saying, and, and you have all these people coming in and out of your life, and, and how do you prepare meals for all these people and, and, and that's why I liked you had so much experience dealing with all of these different personality types but yet making them happy when it came to to a, a very important um, daily routine for us and, and that's eating yeah no it's true it, and I think I try like it's not even selfish but I try to keep you know I have a lot of cooks that work for me too and I try to buy um you know, a big variety of ingredients to start with, but I try to get things that I either really know I enjoy using or maybe I'm making an effort to get to know. But if you're home and you open your refrigerator and it's filled with, oh, I bought that because somebody likes it, but I don't really get what it is, or somebody gave me this vinegar and I, it tastes weird. And You know, if you don't start with things that you feel you like. I mean, like is a funny word, and we can all kind of 
open up our minds and practice tasting and try and like all new things. But at some point in time, we all do have opinions and feelings. And if you don't like blueberries, you just don't like blueberries. Like I always tell people, just don't don't make them, don't start (laughs) cooking what you like. I mean, and then with given all the things you like as a cook, if you're the person who's cooking, you probably have a good amount of things you like. Then who am I cooking for? You know, who are these people? There's a lot of kids coming over, and I like, you know, pasta too. So I know they're going to be happy with that. Or, just, you know, I'm going to have older people over, and I'm going to make something that's not too spicier. But start with what you like so that when you taste it, it brings you pleasure. It's like buying someone a gift. If you give someone something that you like as well as you think they will like it, that's kind of a, be- a good beginning point to make everybody happy or as mm-hmm. much as you can. And yeah, that, that, if you start that out, you know, sense. like it too much yourself, it's not going to, it's probably not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. No, that, I'm going to keep that in mind. Um, that, that is really good advice, um, taking all of that into consideration. You, you've cooked for some really famous people, and from the Dalai Lama to Mikhail Gorbachev. When, when you're cooking for, say, the, the Dalai Lama, is are are you kind of given you know, to talk about things that people like or don't like. But when you're cooking for um, notable people, do, do, do they give you a list up, up up front, like, I don't like walnuts or, you know, or I don't. Who, who are, I mean, I don't, let's see. I won't say this, I know this for sure, but, like, many people don't want to be maybe catered to, but sometimes the people around those people are very concerned, you know, that they're happy. And so I suspect, although because I, I didn't, I did get to, you know, bring food and see and greet the Dalai Lama himself, but I didn't um, speak to him directly, of course, about what he was eating. And so, but the people around him want to make sure he's happy. And so one, one thing he does do that people were surprised is he does eat meat. I mean, that, you know, there's a lot of, not a lot of vegetables and there is a lot of meat there. So people were surprised that he ate meat and he, and so we did, but uh, that we did this, we cooked for him here twice. And so the second time around, the people around him weren't sure what he wanted, so they did ask me to do one meal with meat, one meal without, nothing to be wasted because there were people around in the in his you know group that you know where it was buffet style, and everybody would have you know all that we made. So it wasn't like uh, make two meals, one won't be eaten, but we did have options. The first time around, I did a single meal, and uh, I wasn't really told what to cook. It was kind of cool, actually, for that reason. It was really open, and I did a seasonal meal. I had beets, and I had, had a nice um, baked apple and a lot of um, autumn vegetables, and I did a little uh, steak, not a big piece, but we did do some steak. And I, I mean, it sounds like maybe cliche, but I really do try to – think that we're all the same and we all just want to get people that you're cooking for something with love and good flavor and so um, if you approach everybody like they're the Dalai Lama then you really will be (laughs) right right. well I'm surprised too that um, that he ate meat so but it makes sense once you say it being from Tibet you know but I don't know I just assume now see that's that's where we always go wrong with assumptions about people. I just assume. Yeah, that right. I, was, I assume the same, to be truthfully. So it was it was a surprise. But I think it's about 
being like you said sustainable like what is what what do you you know uh what grows where you live and what makes sense to eat and don't be wasteful and um you know i mean i believe that i don't we we've had some fun meals here at the institute we do earth day meal every year and one year the theme was to make everything was within just a few i think well it was like 60 miles of like everything literally we made our own uh vinegar from wine we just used maple syrup to sweeten things we had corn and there is somebody doing wheat nearby and we so we had it was a really restricted doesn't mean that's the most sustainable thing in the world it might take extra effort to do some of those and grow them here but we just it's just limits drive creativity and make you understand what is going on with the local meal but on the other side of it all is that people who maybe don't have the means to travel around the world and haven't tried great cuisines a little bit of saffron in you know their eggs even you know something it's transporting and and it's shelf stable and can sit and help make local, otherwise local ingredients, potatoes, onions, you know, less expensive, less exotic ingredients, taste wonderful. So I'm a, I'm kind of a, like to combine those things, you know, and, and think mm-hmm. that sharing of great imported ingredients is, is exciting and dynamic and it's transporting. And like I said, not everybody can travel around the world, you know, and try things. And so it's one way to travel in a way is to have uh you know imported ingredients combined with local ingredients mm-hmm. well I, I think Shelley, that you represent what a lot of people are thinking that's why i think your book will be very successful it's called a year of recipes from the garrison institute kitchen by shelly boris and it's available pre-order right now we'll ship in june Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all of your regular um, places to go to go to your regular bookstore. I'll always support independent bookstores and, and pick it up there. If they don't have it, ask for it by name. They want to sell you a book, they'll order it for you. You know, They're in the business to, to, to get a book in your hands. So um, if you're at an independent bookstore and they don't have your book, um, ask for it. They will order it. So Shelly, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was just a really great conversation for, for me to have. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, people can find out more at freshcompany.net and the garrisoninstitute.org. And, of course, we have the links on on our website as well. So thanks, Shelley. And I'm going to have this book shipping to me. I'm already in the queue. I've already pre-ordered. So uh, it's already coming to me, and I can't wait to get it. I'll have to let you know what, what I try first. I'd love to. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. We want to thank Shelly Boris for coming on, and we're going to get Jennifer and Morgan on the line, and we're going to talk about their new book that's coming out, Exposure. Actually, it is out, so you can order that as well. So, again, thanks to Shelly Boris for coming on. And we're going to play Joyfield. They just won the Hard Rock Rising Global Competition. They are on their way to Rome in a week or so to play before 40,000 people. And, of course, they're from right here in Seattle. This is their song that they won with called Marie. I'll be right back with Morgan and Jennifer. Avoir mon 
No, it's absolutely my pleasure. So this actually started, what, yesterday, and then it's just kind of kept gaining momentum until the, the links were live and, and people were able to start ordering the book. Yeah, what do you think, Jen? Yeah, the uh, the paperback went live yesterday on Amazon. So um, actually when I got to work, one of my coworkers informed me it was up. Uh, so that was how I found out about it. But um, as soon as we started getting word out on, on the link being up, uh, our social media has just been crazy. Yeah, e- even though today is the official release date, June 3rd, we here in the Pacific Northwest, we're always kind of the last. You know, it's, it's already mm-hmm. Christmas in Australia, you know. So they're a little <laughs> bit ahead of us. And so I think it, the book went live Greenwich time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. In fact, that's always what I like about um, pre-ordering a book is that it drops in New York City like at midnight, but I still get it like at 9 o'clock like the day before. Know. And, and you know, when we actually say, do that, are you reading Central, that? We get to watch at midnight at 9 o'clock. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, then by midnight you're, you you can go to bed like normal people. Oh, I'm Snoozeville. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we have to talk to you. You guys are married. Your husband or wife. You've been married for a long time. You have a family. You have children. How did this come about that you were going to write a book together? All right, um, I'll, I'll go first, Jen. <laughs> you know, Jennifer and I have always kind of been maybe a little bit creative writers, uh, but we never considered doing anything more. Um, uh, anything with it, period. And I was a musician and recorded a few albums. But other than that, it wasn't until she started reading fan fiction right around the time I started getting involved with NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. And my particular book was in first person, and she was reading fan fiction because she had just finished the Twilight series, and they were a, a series of books in first person. And she said, hey, you know, this, this other book I'm reading, is I, was having, I was struggling with first person. It was weird for me. I'm a third-person, omnipresent writer normally. And she said, you should read the Twilight books. Well, just like that, I was reading fan fiction with her because, uh, you know, imagine a book like Twilight, or for me, imagine a book like Harry Potter. And instead of being eight books, there are now 80 or, hell, 8,000 other Harry Potter books out there. So we started reading fan fiction and whatnot, and we started uh, writing and posting books online for a couple of years and editing each other's books. And once we felt like we had gotten uh, the hang of it, what do you say, did we? Yeah. We felt like we'd gotten, we'd gotten all the bugs out. We kind of understood how to write a book. Jennifer presented with me, uh, to me this really great outline. She goes, I've got this great idea for a really steamy, really funny Hollywood uh, romance, but I want there to be a villain. And she goes, I think we should do it together because, you know, f- for me especially, I-, I try to be really corny in pretty much everything I do. <laughs> uh, and and I, I kind of like the villains I had been writing in other stories had been you know, life and death guys, you know, murderers and whatnot. So she says, you could definitely write a Hollywood snob, you know. So <laughs> she has this great outline, and we just start writing it chapter by chapter. We outlined each chapter, and then one of us would, would take a pass at it, and then the other person would come along and expand it a little bit. And then we'd read it out loud. In the end, I think that was one of the most crucial things. Jennifer would read the chapter out loud, and we'd both hear it. And then we'd make any corrections together as a couple. And 40 chapters later, we had a book. Well, what's it? Well, did did one of you write one person and the other write the other at, at some point, or or did you collaborate with all the characters? I think there was one or two characters Morgan wrote 
pretty much solely on his own, but for the most part, I'd say we we both added to the characters. I think that's a definite because when we would expand chapters, uh, I would write, uh, I would take a first pass at chapter two, some character introductions of Shauna and David, our two lead characters, um, and. Jennifer would come along, and she would really expand on it. And, and so we both got a chance to get the note, to know the characters together. By the end of the book, definitely I felt more connected with some of the male characters, and she felt more connected with the girls. And, and that kind of allowed us to explore emotion more freely later on in the book when it, things got more tense. We both had really great perspectives we could lend. But in terms of, I think, their caricatures and how they acted, both of us were really, I mean, I, I was surprised at how easily we were able to get into the characters' heads, no matter who it was, and drive around for a while. Did you ever think if, if someone said something about a character, was there ever time where you thought they would never do that or they would never think that, or, 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 were you, or did that never enter into play? Oh, I, I think that happens from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think we've busted each other out on a few of those types yeah, of things, you know, yeah. like, no, I just that doesn't. A lot of it were, would be smaller. It would be if one of us were writing dialogue and the other, especially when we were reading it and hearing it out loud. Usually, we would both stop. Jennifer, how many times did we both stop on the exact same problem and go, "Whoa!" Yeah. You know, so by the end of it, we were reading each other's minds, and we could we could both we both knew exactly what was going wrong or and what was going right. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is that's amazing. So, did it make you? even stronger as a as a couple no doubt in my mind absolutely yeah absolutely yeah, no doubt in my mind and frankly i owe most of it to rob pattinson and uh, <laughs> twilight fan fiction uh, but instead of instead of uh, pushing against that uh, you know, Jennifer very wisely, she was very savvy about it. Here I am writing a zombie book. She's like, you should have the Twilight series. That was the first. It's not really my thing. You know, I don't like vampires much or, or romance. But they were really compelling books. And the only flaw I had with the Twilight series, and I believe uh, some other people did as well, which is why the fan fiction exploded, was that they almost seemed unfinished. The characters were really great, but the story seemed like it could have gone on. And so we started exploring the idea of writing stories with characters that were already developed. And then we started writing stories where we developed our own characters, and that's where I think we really unlocked. But as a couple, uh, you know, we've been married since, what, 95, Jen, right? Yeah, of course, 95. So, you know, we're, we're <laughs> so we've been married long enough. We've got a couple kids, and, and I think you go ups and downs, obviously, as any couple would, but writing together has, without a doubt, made us very close because we've been so busy when you're pissed off at each other you don't want to talk to each other and we had too much stuff to get done we had a freaking chapter to get out dang it so we couldn't afford to give each other the cold shoulder or the silent treatment so we had to make up real quick not get down to business so, but i think that was great definitely yeah i i yeah you, there, there's there's no time to be mad because there's business but, but you know in what here. in all seriousness Lori, i think a lot of it was also that we learned to be fans of each other and appreciate each other. I mean, I'm reading some stuff Jennifer writes, and I'm like, dang, this is really great stuff. I really love it. And, and she's laughing at my jokes. I'm like, oh, good, she's going to let me keep that one. You know? And so <laughs> over the time, we began to admire each other. And to me, it was, it was so good. I mean, obviously, you love your lover. You love your partner. Right. And, but when you get to that point where you've been together 20-odd years and you start to really admire and become fans of each other, it – 
really helps, I think, to rekindle, uh, to use a uh-huh. term, uh, your relationship. I can totally see that because, yeah, you know, after a while you might start taking, you know, different things for granted for someone, and then you get to see totally. them in this whole I, I other life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or I think, you know, you become so wrapped up in your own your own personal world, you know, with mm-hmm. your job and, and the things you have mm-hmm. to do for the family that you kind of lose touch with each other. Sometimes. Well, the, the, the original, I mean, the concept for, for finding a partner and for being married is to have a cheerleader, to have a partner that doesn't bring you down but builds you up. And writing taught us the importance of editing each other's lives as well as each other's books. You know, we, we would give each other great advice and, and help each other cut out the crap. And so it, we just sort of used those lessons as writers. We, we applied them to other areas of our lives, and it, it was really successful. Well, you'll probably be able to get another book deal on a comedy self-help relationship one-on-one uh, <laughs> type of book deal. <laughs> Nice. I don't know if anyone wants me to help them, but (laughs) I can give it a shot. Yeah, that's true. true. We would need pictures. (laughs) Jen, why don't you tell us a little bit about exposure? Oh, absolutely. Jen, you want to take this one? Uh, Sure. Um, Exposure is a contemporary romance set in modern-day Hollywood, and it's basically the story of a shy publicist who has her two biggest clients are Hollywood royalty they're married to one another Um, they've just been cast to film this big sci-fi blockbuster Um, and as soon as they leave to go film on location in Houston um, the husband decides to dump the wife and kind of a whole lot of chaos ensues from that oh and he's a total jerk too by the way it's not even you know he blindsides her but this dude has been, like, sneaking crap out of his Malibu house for months. This guy is a total tool. And we start, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So Shauna, she has to now pick sides, where well, he kind of tries to force her to pick sides. And in the midst of, of her as a publicist dealing with these clients going through this, she falls in love with one of the other leading men on the set. And um, there's a... a how would you describe the Three's Company-esque nature? I should say Shakespearean rather than Three's Company. <laughs> Except for the fact that, you know, the thing Jennifer and I really hate, we're both avid readers. And the one thing that we both really, really hate is reading a book where a two-minute conversation would have uh, negated the whole purpose for the book. If these two people would just sit down and talk to each other. So there are some things that happen in this book that are just completely beyond our lead character's control. And they have to simply kind of ride the tide for a while until they can figure out a way out of, of some very interesting scenarios, including the press, including them getting the wrong idea about who's sleeping with who. And uh, in the midst of all of it, this really awesome budding romance. I totally took the ball away from you, Jen, by the oh, way. Oh, but you're fine. But I shot and I scored a three-pointer. But I'll... <laughs> <laughs> well, did you have any um, experience in in this world of, of publicity or Hollywood? <laughs> I guess not, huh? I well, mean... Morgan's, Morgan's been in community theater pretty much his whole life and and a lot of his family is very active in the performing arts yeah i guess that's true i mean i I get the actors mentality maybe not so much direct hollywood experience right i think you know we have a pretty good feel for the world just theatrical people in general (laughs) (laughs) well no they're pretty much the same no matter where you go you know there's a nest of them in in hollywood 
you know, we were avid readers, but we are totally addicted to the boob tube as well. We watch a ton of TV. We don't care. And we watch tons of movies. And we, re- in fact, this book is filled with these really awesome pop culture references. Uh, the director of Slingshot, which is the name of the uh, fictitious sci-fi movie that they're filming, he's got this collection of Hollywood cars. And not like, he doesn't have enough money to go get, like, the DeLorean from Back to the Future or anything. Instead, he's got, like... Brad Pitt's Blue El Camino from the Mexican, you know, like, he's got this great mm-hmm. weird collection. The book is filled with a lot of these kind of real-life fun things that people in Hollywood would celebrate, while in the midst of being characters that we find really relatable. Uh, you know, I think these, these people could just be uh, in a paper mill and be just as relatable as being in Hollywood, because the problems we're dealing with are human problems, not celebrity problems. Well, I don't know. There's some there's celebrity. There's a few celebrity That's true. Problems. The, the paparazzi doesn't follow <laughs> us around. So, yeah, I guess. <laughs> not yet, well, anyway, in and... America. <laughs> well, pop culture is right up my alley. Reality TV is my guilty pleasure. So I'm right there with you on that. And this right book, on. it's like you really wrote it for me because this is exactly something that I would read. And I don't read a lot. I, I mostly read, like, picture books with, like, captions underneath it. Like, <laughs> go here and have dinner. <laughs> go here and, you know, and people right. watch. Those are, those, those are kind yeah, of I my I think books. that's called your GPS. Um, it's on your car, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, and, 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 and I'm headed to Hollywood. <laughs> but yeah, I, I have, I, I have re- uh, started reading some more. Uh, well, I got involved with reading, you know, through Fifty Shades of Grey, and then. Um, I branched out because I could only read it so many times. So that's how I ended up on Twitter to ask people for more suggestions because I knew I had a problem that I kept rereading the book. I did know. Well, you know, saying you have a problem is the first part of recovery. So I did know that. And so then I went on to somebody that you guys know real well, which is Sylvain Raynard, and I read all of those books. And then I got pointed off into uh, another direction, and um, yeah, I started reading. And, and that's just kind of how I, I, I started reading. The great thing about Twitter was people could give you um, uh, some recommendations, and you could talk to them like, well, I only like you know happy ending books, or I only like books that are this way. And I could really fine-tune sure, the sure. things the that, that I like. <laughs> they really you, you, will, and I, I just... I found it was a great resource to, to and it kept me reading. Is is what it ended up doing. It kept me moving forward because like I, it kept pointing me in, in the right direction. It, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and half that, the fun is going on right now, and then and then getting online to talk to other people about it, and and mm-hmm. and having these great enthusiastic discussions. Yes, one hundred and forty characters at a time, or read along. <laughs> There's, uh, we've been in a part of, I think for, um, for SR's books, uh, Gabriel's Inferno books, there's been read-alongs, and everyone's on Twitter reading along and talking, that's been really fun, and you, you actually mentioned that the two people that were two of the first people that inspired us as well, E.L. James, uh, who has been extremely generous and helpful to us with the release of Exposure even, uh, and SR as well, Silver Renard has, has been extremely helpful, in fact, he's been a real inspiration to me personally, um, given the fact that, you know, both being men in a, uh, an ecosystem that's really driven by a lot of kind of female angst, <laughs> a 
Although, oh, it's female, funny. Mm-hmm. Female energy. Female, I was going to say, I was going to say, <laughs> actually, no, it, angst isn't the right word because, Lori, you were just saying, I only want happy endings, I only want this. There's a lot of people that are like, I don't want books that are too angsty, you know? I don't want to do right, a bunch right. of emo stuff. And that was actually one of Jennifer's goals with exposure. She said, I don't want this to be just, just super unresolved negativity. I just want this to be fun and light and free and, and, uh, and mm-hmm. but really kind of grab a hold of you. And that really attracted me as a guy was that it, it was going to be deep and it was going to be way steamier than I thought I was signing on for. But I ended up really getting into it and having a lot of fun with it, you know. And, uh, but it was, it was, it's light. Uh, uh, I think the only flaw with exposure, honestly, is that it's going to read really fast. It's going to be one of those books, and I, I love and hate those books that I read in two days. I'm like, oh, that was good, but I'm still kind of hungry. <laughs> well, that'll just go back and, and reread it. Is there going to be, is this a standalone book, or is it part of a trilogy, or? Gosh, I guess that depends on how well it does. Hint, hint, America. No, the, the truth is, Jennifer and I are both, I've, I've just finished another book, and she's about ready to edit it for me, and she's halfway through a book that I'm going to start working on for her. And we are discussing, uh, and they, both these books are kind of romantic. I don't think they're um, quite the level of steaminess that exposure is going to I don't know. I can only speak for myself because mine's a ghost story, and there's, there's not a lot of ghost humping going on, so... <laughs> So, uh, but we are already talking about, um, A, the idea of, we have a really good idea for a sequel, if that becomes something that uh, seems to be really, uh, there's interest in it, but we also have at least five or six other great ideas for uh, romantic books that we want to write together. So you have, like, other characters in your head, I've heard writers say that stories, who want their story told. I've heard writers say that. Oh, yeah. Characters yeah. Pop yeah they're not head. characters. For me, it's more um, titles. I'm a labeler. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I come up with an idea, and once I've come up with a really nice, smart title, then I write it on a little piece of paper, and I, I, and I just sort of eventually I throw them in a hat and pull one out. No, I, I usually talk with Jennifer um, about it, and, what's, and she just helps me find whichever one is going to gnaw at me the most. Because if you pick the wrong book, then you're going to be writing a story that you shouldn't be writing while the other one is distracting you. So you want to make sure you can. And for me, that's my problem. I've got you know, half a dozen at, at least. I'm actually looking at about twice that. Um, and you just have to calm yourself down a little bit and just do one story at a time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you have so many people that are interested in this. I mean, you're very well liked online. You have a big following. Um, when you put out the the sign-up for your book tour, blog tour, you had a huge response. You guys are going to be so busy in book promoting, and there's so many people. And, and one good thing, Morgan, about it being a quick read is word can get out right away. And oh, yeah, online, sure. you know, <laughs> Maybe that we don't have to wait really... for the reviews to start pouring in on Amazon. Exactly. You know, think about it. We're so excited for people that aren't our editors and family to re- my, the thing I'm waiting for most of all is that person who has no idea who I am, who Jennifer is, or who her exposure is, who said, two ninety nine. all right, I'll pick up that book. It's a cool-looking cover. I've never read a husband and a wife uh, mm-hmm. steamy romantic comedy before. And to have a completely uh, unconnected review, I'm really excited mm-hmm. to read that because I, I, I think that people are going to – they're going to – 
relate to this book on a couple of different levels. I think we, we've hit a couple of different marks, and that's what has driven me for the last nine months during the editing process is it's just gotten smarter and smarter and uh, an easier read. And Jennifer is a genius when it comes to editing. Um, she's, she really understands. She's actually was able to pull chapters and move them around. She's playing Tetris with the book like eight weeks ago. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know how to put it back, right? That's cool. I don't want to know. Don't worry. It's fine. And she went like, oh, that's way better. You know? And so you're right. And, and I do want to comment on I think whatever success we've had, at least so far, with social media uh, is really due in part to the two authors we talked about before. You know, when uh, E.L. James was first publishing Fifty Shades of Grey, um, she had it on a smaller label or a smaller publishing house, and the Heathman Hotel, um, I don't think she knew this, uh, although she, you know, the Heathman Hotel, she must have because it was in the dang book. It's, it, Heathman Hotel, as you know, is part of Fifty Shades of Grey in Portland, um, but they oh, yeah, have a I library know. there, <laughs> and it's a writer's hotel, and if you're a writer and you stay there and you sign a book and give it to them, they'll put it in part of their special library. Well, you know, uh, E.L. James, has, uh, she was in London, and we got a copy of her book, and we took it to the Heathman and convinced the owner that even though she hadn't stayed there, but she'd signed the book, and since the Heathman was a character in the book, that he should put this book. Was, and, of course, no one had heard of Fifty Shades of Grey yet. And he said, yes, you bet I'll do that. That sounds like a really great idea, no problem. And we, we told IC about it. IC's our nickname for Fan Fiction Days, Erica or E.L. James. Um, and we told her about it, and she was so, she was so nice and so grateful. And she, uh, Fifty Shades Darker comes out, and we see our names in print. She thanks us for all things Heathman, right, by name, right there in Fifty Shades Darker. And we couldn't believe that she would take the time to, to have our names printed 80 million times now just because we gave her a hand with this hotel. You know, we, she deserved it, for one thing. I'll tell you what, though. It's really the Heathman that owes us now. We should be getting right. – I, I mean, we should totally be getting some rooms there because the yeah, next time yeah, we went, did. oh, yeah, there, was, oh, there were Fifty Shades packages. <laughs> you know, they were in league with the massage parlor next door. I mean, they had uh, the whole thing, and so – uh, it was it was great, but well, and, because and she ended up staying there when she did her book tour. Yes, yeah. we actually stayed there the same night. Uh, we were mm-hmm. there as well, so mm-hmm. we could meet her in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, well, of course, we didn't know where she was or anything. <laughs> and believe me, we looked. <laughs> but we got a chance <laughs> to meet her later that afternoon at Powell's, and she, again, she was just couldn't be more generous. Uh, she treated us like rock stars, and she was the one that we came to see. And, and uh, it's, it's been over a year, and I still can't believe. And same thing with SR. You know, he might be fairly private with his, with his life, but with his generosity, with his encouragement, with his wisdom, mm-hmm. uh, he's a fountain. Mm-hmm. And he's been extremely mm-hmm. nice and supportive of us, and, and that's really helped. Yeah, I completely, completely <sighs> agree. Both Erica and Niall have been super, super wonderful and generous to me and uh, big, you know, I, 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 I support them as people. And, uh, you know, I, I found out about the Fifty Shades book and you know, I kind of got caught up in all of that. But, but what really has, you know, kept me hanging in there for the long run was just how good of people that, that the author was, that yeah, I just re- had really great experience, you know, personally with E.L. James. And uh, I, I've had Niall on the show and uh, Erica's been on the show. And, um, 
and I read all SR's books. In fact, Erica was the one who said, you know, I, originally I had talked with her. I said, you know, I'd really like to get you on the show. And she said, well, I really just don't like to get, give interviews. I, they make me really nervous. And, you know, and, and my show's not really about wanting people to be nervous. I want people to have a really good time when they come on. Loosen up, baby. You know, so, <laughs> so, so she, um, she said, but you should read these books and have these people on. And so that's, that was what set me down that journey. And so since I've had Daisy Prescott and um, Ruth, oh, uh, Ruth Clampett and, and uh, Estelle Scott, and, you know, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And it really, you know, led me down oh, this wonderful we're, we're path. We were in really good company. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so it, it, it's just been really a, a, a really good experience that I've been able to interweave those, um, those authors in with what we were already doing. And, um, and then eventually she, she did call into the show one, you know, one time. So and it, all that worked out. And so I expect that you'll get that same type of love that, uh, that, that comes from this ginormous fandom on Twitter. Uh, and once they find out how great this book is, that it will just explode. And, um, you know, you will get those unbiased reviews from people and it'll, that, that, you know, didn't know you before. It would be, it'd be and nice. Jennifer you'll... and I, since, since day one, when she got me, she, I still haven't finished my zombie book. Remember the zombie book I told you about? <laughs> still not done. So, because I, I told her from the beginning, when I first started, I started writing a, a piece of Twilight fan fiction that took place in Paris called Bella Voce, and the, the, the vampire was Bella. And it was this really dark, gritty, bohemian thing. And I told Jennifer, I said, you know, people are going to go to it because uh, right away I said, well, you know, I'm the, I'm the husband of so-and-so, and i given this a go. And there was a lot of buzz right away. All the girls were like, oh, they wanted to see how a guy wrote a lemon. And, of course, a lemon is uh, the nice, um, the, what term is this? It's a it's term, love it's, yeah, term for a love scene. <laughs> and everyone really wanted to see how a guy would write a lemon. I, and Jennifer and I kept saying to each other all along, because she was a wonderful editor the whole time. That was our first real experience with that book in, like, 2009 or 10. We said, you know what, they'll come over because they're curious. The only way they're going to stay there is if the work is solid, if they're mm-hmm. getting something out of it, they're believable and fun and interesting characters and a good story and uh, good writing. Uh, and, and that's what we tried to stay with for the last two or three years while we were preparing to write a book that was ready to be published and to present to uh, Omnific, which in our opinion is a, a really high caliber company that really has high standards for their authors, and it was it was uh, our first choice of publisher, and the only one we sent a letter out to. And thankfully, we didn't have to send a second to someone else because Omnific said yes, and and all of it was just based on that that one idea that okay, and it's the same thing with exposure. Oh, it's a husband and wife. I mean, that is sure that's titillating. We know that, and we're going to. I use that even right here on the show. I'm reminding myself of the XTC Oranges uh, album cover where you're just <laughs> talking about the advertising and happening. But the truth is, yes, that is interesting, but we know that a gimmick is only going to get people to walk over. It's not going to get them to really appreciate what you did unless you've offered a really truly good and unique piece of art. And in our case, it's, it's a, a fun little book that takes place on a movie set mostly in uh, Texas and Hollywood. Perfect, and it's only two ninety nine. Is, is that right? Is, is that what the download yeah, is? Two ninety nine. Yeah, Kindle, oh Nook. Um, of course, you can get the paperback as well from many different retailers. Amazon is probably uh, quick and easy. Mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble's has mm-hmm. it uh, for paperback. Wherever fine books are sold online. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, and I want to make sure that people can get to your website or your Facebook page and so that, you know, a lot of times it's hard for them to retain all the information through the show. You know what, Morgan and Jennifer Locklear, you could just Google that crap and it would take you right to, you could get to the Facebook, you could get to the blog. We have a, our blog is called Big Spoon, Little Spoon, which is kind of an inside joke actually from the Bella Voce days. Uh, And the Facebook, the blog, they're all interlinked, Goodreads. Once you find one, you can find them all. Uh, mm-hmm. Even the fan fiction stuff comes up on Google, like one of the first two or three things. And since we're not, it's not pen names, you know, uh, Morgan and Jennifer, that's our handle, 10 good buddy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty easy to find it's it. Just using any, conventional, any conventional web search would pull that stuff up because it's the most active. Right, right. You know, which is to okay. say, eventually, if you go down far enough, you'll see a picture of me and Damn Yankees from 2004. But that's not very <laughs> active. You'd have to really. Ah, <laughs> uh, you gotta love Google, don't you? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to let you guys go because you're going to be actually. We're going to have you back on next week on June 10th, and we're going to see how the week has gone and where you stand and how many people have read the book. And we're going to talk more. We're going to expand this conversation out. And I'm going to have read the book by then, too. Oh, great. Well, please, feel There's free a big cliffhanger. to be prepared with any questions for us. And we're, I will. We're, uh, we're, we'll be really excited to, to talk in a week after having a little bit more, more time to kind of experience this. Absolutely, and I encourage anyone else, you know, to read the book and join in on the conversation with us next week. If you have any questions or you want to ask uh, Morgan and Jennifer some questions, they're going to be back on June 10th, so that gives us some time to read the book and make our notes and and, and put them in the hot seat. The, the thing is, once I like a book, I really like a book. You'll never get rid of me. I'll just be a fan forever. That's you know, that's kind of, of how downside. I operate too. I'm I'm totally down with that. Yeah, Jen's loyal. She's a loyal reader. Jennifer, she'll hoard books, like the same copy of the book, because, like, ooh, there's another one, you know. <laughs> What's okay, you know. <laughs> I'm not well, with records. We all have our things. Yeah. <laughs> we all have our thing, exactly. All right, well, the name of the book is Exposure. You can find it on Amazon. Download it. Two ninety nine. Come on, two ninety nine. It's less than a copy at Starbucks, so we don't have any problem going through Starbucks multiple times a day. Two ninety nine. Oh, believe me, this will this will definitely keep you up a lot longer than a cup of coffee, too. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> and it's well, in the window, fellas. I can't wait to read it. So um, we're going to meet back here in a week, and I'm going to have my questions, and hopefully other people will too. I appreciate you guys took the time to come on today. I know you're really busy. Oh, thanks so much, Oh, thanks so much for having us. That's great. All right. We hold the line, and I'll be right back moment. And this is Caitlin Logan, another Seattle wonderful singer-songwriter, and this is River in the Rain. I'll be right back. Um 
show, we would like to thank our listeners, our guests, and of course, our sponsor, Audible.com. We've included an easy one-click link to Audible.com where you can just go and browse and check out and see if catching up on your reading is right for you through an audiobook. The first book is free. doesn't cost anything to check it out. So check it out. Get back with us. Let us know what you think. And be sure to also check out NorthwestPrime.com. For this interview and other great interviews that we've had with numerous celebrities and other entertainers in the past. Thanks and have a great day.